Hello. Welcome to the seventh edition of the BLS Report. The BLS Report is a series of podcasts that we produce on issues of interest to members of the business law section of the Law Council of Australia, and we hope the wider legal community. This series honours the legacy of our friend and mentor, the late Bob Baxt, AO, who was one of the founders and key drivers of the BLS. I'm Professor Pamela Hanrahan from the UNSW Business School. I'm a member of the executive of the BLS and a corporations and financial services lawyer. With me today is John Keeves, who's a partner at Johnson, Winter and Slattery and a member of the executive of the business law section also. Welcome, John. Thanks, Pamela. This podcast is about a very topical issue, cybersecurity. We're going to be looking at the Critical Infrastructure Bill, which is some legislation that's currently before the federal parliament. The bill is going to impose new and extensive cybersecurity requirements on what will be called critical infrastructure. Uh, But as we'll see, that covers a number of sectors of the economy beyond what perhaps, John, you and I would typically have thought of as infrastructure in ordinary language. So it includes things like the food and grocery supply chain, uh, health sector, education, financial services, and so on. So we're very lucky to have two fabulous guests for the podcast. First of all, we have Rebecca Dunn, who's a partner with Gilbert and Tobin. Uh, Rebecca's in the intellectual property group at GNT. She is an intellectual property litigator with experience in copyright, data, software, social media, and trade secrets. Welcome, Rebecca, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pamela. Good to be here. We also have Marcus Clark, who's a partner with Johnson, Winter and Slattery. Marcus practices primarily in M&A and foreign investment. He's a co-author of Foreign Investment in Australia, the loose leaf that we all rely on, um, and he's previously lived and practised law in the United States, Hong Kong, Singapore and Thailand. Welcome, Marcus. Great to have you with us today. Hi, Pamela. How are you, John? Thank you for having me. Thanks, Pamela, and welcome, Rebecca and Marcus. Just uh, probably add that Marcus is also an active member of our uh, BLS uh, Foreign Investment Committee. Um, when we started planning for this podcast and I started looking into the critical infrastructure bill, I thought the federal government might be overreaching. I really did wonder whether all these new requirements were a bit over the top. Then at my son's suggestion, my children gave me a book for Father's Day. It was an eye-opener. It is called This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends by Nicole Pelroth, a New York Times journalist. Um, if only half of what she writes in this book is true, we should all be very concerned about cybersecurity or more correctly, cyber warfare and the potential exposure of critical computer systems to attacks by nation states. Against that background, the bill was introduced into Parliament in December 2020 and was referred to the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, but the committee has not yet reported, at least not publicly. Uh, given that a federal election is due by the second quarter of 2022, presumably this legislation will be passed before the end of 2021. Okay, in order to set the scene, Rebecca, what are the 11 sectors that the bill will cover? Thanks, John. And um, as Pamela said, we've seen a significant expansion of the types of sectors that are deemed critical under this bill. Um, So rather than just covering what we might traditionally think of as critical infrastructure like electricity, gas, water, ports, there are now 11 sectors which are deemed critical, and I'll just run through them. 
there's the communication sector, the financial services and markets sector, data storage and processing sector, the defence industry, uh, higher education and research, the energy sector, food and grocery sector, which is a significant sector in the Australian market, healthcare and medical sector, the space technology sector, transport and water and sewage. Okay, so that's quite a bit broader than infrastructure, the way I think of it, with pipelines, ports and poles and wires. So it seems to cover a good part of the economy. I guess uh, our experience in the last 18 months with COVID has kind of shown us what is actually critical uh, in terms of uh, keeping the economy going and sort of keeping people uh, fed and uh, watered and so on. Okay, Rebecca, um, could you outline the, the key new requirements of the bill on those sort of covered sectors and entities? So the bill kind of, kind of looks at three major aspects of what these sectors are doing. Firstly, it imposes additional positive security obligations uh, in relation to what they call critical infrastructure assets. And that includes um, steps such as risk management programs, which will be delivered, uh, the bill says, through sector-specific requirements. It's quite inspecific and also mandatory cyber incident reporting. And we can talk a little bit more about that um, today. Secondly, there are enhanced cybersecurity obligations for assets of national significance. And finally, uh, what's termed a government assistance regime for critical infrastructure sector assets in response to significant cyber attacks. Um, Each of these will only be implemented and applicable if turned on by the rules, uh, which we haven't seen yet. Thanks, Rebecca. So of those 11 sectors that you mentioned a moment ago, um, the government will then come back and turn on or off these different requirements across the different individual sectors. Is that right? That seems to be the case, um, certainly based on what we've seen so far. Okay, great. But there are some assets that are systems of national significance, I think they're called. What What are those So um, they will be deemed to be systems of national significance by the government um, and and the government's imposing what's called enhanced cybersecurity obligations in relation to those. Um, That'll include the development of cybersecurity incident response plans. Many organisations will already have a response plan, of course. Um, It requires uh, those systems to undertake cybersecurity exercises to build out preparedness and vulnerability assessments to identify what remediation actions they can take. Uh, It also does require the provision of access to system information to build what the bill says is Australia's situational awareness. So really, um, and this is one of the more controversial aspects of the bill uh, in relation to where the government can ask for information and actually step in in relation to serious cybersecurity incidents. When you say step in, can, can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so it's quite, um, the way it's set out in the bill, it's quite complicated and there's kind of a multi-tiered assessment about when that can occur. Um, Essentially, uh, what the government's saying is that they want to work in partnership with industry to sort of collaboratively resolve incidents. Um, But it also, despite that, it does give the government a lot of power to intervene in the event of a cybersecurity incident. So I'll run through the kind of requirements that must be met before the government can choose to exercise that step-in right. Um, firstly, it has to be an, a cybersecurity incident occurring or be imminent. It has to have a relevant impact on a critical infrastructure asset. And there has to be a material risk that the incident has seriously prejudiced or is likely to seriously prejudice um, the social or economic stability of Australia or its people, the defence of Australia or national security. 
And there has to be no existing law um, or regulatory system which can provide a practical response to the incident. So you can see that that's a very broad discretionary power. Um, and if an incident meets those conditions, which are fairly um, not very specific, uh, the defence of Australia and national security, as we know, are very, very broad concepts. Um, but if if um, the Minister for Home Affairs thinks that an incident meets that threshold, they may authorise the Secretary to either gather information from that entity um, or require the entity to take assistance from an authorised agency, which would probably be the Australian Signals Directorate in this instance. Just imagining how that would apply in a real situation. So we had a cybersecurity incident affecting a big gas pipeline in North America last month or the month before, I think. If something like that, you know, did happen in Australia and the Home Affairs Minister came to the view that the owner of that pipeline was not managing its response appropriately, that means that they could put someone from the ASD in charge of the incident or the company? That's That seems to be the case. Um, and, uh, yes, it has to be that the entity involved is not willing or able to take reasonable steps to resolve the incident. Um, but, again, there's not a lot of specificity in what would where, how that threshold would be met. Um, and so in that case, yes, uh, a, a government entity would be able to step in and essentially take control of the response to the incident. So it wouldn't be a matter of them taking control of the entire company, but it would be, basically be that they were directing what the company did in response to that attack. And are those ministerial discretions, are they, are they reviewable? Are they supervised? This is one of the um, criticisms of the current draft. Um, as it's a cybersecurity incident which relates to national security, there doesn't appear, appear to be a direct right of review. Um, and I think a lot of the commentary and submissions that have been made in relation to the bill do pick this up and say that there should be an avenue to review um, and to have someone independent uh, and qualified looking at those incidents and the step-in exercise. One of the interesting aspects of that was in the explanatory memorandum, they've actually said, oh, well, FERB, the FERB legislation, that doesn't have a review process and, oh, look, we'll be handling all this sensitive confidential information. We can't possibly have that reviewed. Um, and yet the, the FERB legislation actually provides a mechanism for administrative review of a very similar power called the last resort power. So we've got two pieces of legislation drafted at roughly the same time, one's providing for a review over very similar subject matter and the other's saying, oh, we can't possibly have that review occur. Um, the Administrative Appeals uh, Tribunal has a security division which is set up to handle um, sensitive reviews. So it is a very odd position they're taking on this. Thanks, Marcus. Do you think that's because they're worried about it being too time critical? Or that is one of the other points that they made. Um, but I just don't understand uh, the difference between using the last resort power, obviously presumably time critical under the foreign investment legislation, and that can be reviewed, um, and yet uh, not being able to do that under the um, critical infrastructure legislation. I also think, you know, it's... Uh, 
it's not being fair to the courts and the tribunal. I mean, they can move very quickly uh, if need be. There's another aspect of the legislation which is, I think, somewhat unusual. I, I haven't done a complete survey, but uh, the the rules, oh, sorry, the provisions are turned on by rules to be made by uh, the minister. Now, I don't think they're disallowable instruments. I haven't actually checked that out myself. Um, but this rulemaking power than, than, rather than regulations does seem to be a bit unusual. And I understand that, that there can be secret rules to declare systems of national significance. So it's the government can declare something but not actually tell anybody except presumably the system itself. Marcus, um, you've had some experience with delegated legislation in the foreign investment context. Do you want to got any comments to make about what, what we might see with those rules? Well, yeah, it's interesting. So first of all, the rules, as, as Rebecca mentioned, turn on the legislation in a particular sector, but it also will come down to the rules in working out, for example, whether uh, critical infrastructure is just coals and woolies or it's the corner store. Um, we just don't know yet. Um, and one of the problems we've seen with legislation recently is there's this huge focus on consultation in relation to the Act, but all the Act is doing is providing a framework for rules. Um, in this particular legislation, one of the key concepts is um, a, a relevant entity. There are going to be 25 separate definitions of what a relevant entity is, all reliant on, to some extent, the rules. Um, so 25 separate sets of rules feeding into what a relevant entity is. Um, the problem with the rules is they're not receiving consultation and they're often rushed and there's often, I think, a perception with the government, oh, they're just rules. If we make a mistake, we can change them. Um, or, you know, uh, if we make a mistake, we'll just put out some guidance telling people to kind of ignore that rule or, or stretching what the interpretation of that rule ought to be. Um, and, you know, to use the foreign investment framework as an example, some of the doozies um, that were made in 2015 are still being corrected. So that's, you know, six years later, uh, we're still fixing up problems that were created um, through rulemaking that just didn't receive adequate consultation, was rushed um, and didn't seem to have the same care taken in drafting that the legislation did. So, so the, the, the point's not so much about the kind of the intent of the legislation, what it's trying to achieve, it's the legislative model that's being used to, to achieve it uh, that, that may give rise to those concerns. To just, um, uh, Marcus, again, uh, you're obviously an expert on foreign investment. This bill interacts with Australia's FDI legislation, the Foreign Acquisitions and Takeovers Act. How does it do that and what does that mean? It does it in a couple of ways. Uh, from a, from a poli policy perspective, the government has recognised uh, that it's um, given uh, the FERB legislation too much work to do. So it's been overly reliant upon FERB to deal with some national interest issues. And, and why FERB isn't a perfect vessel to do that is because it can only react generally to transactions. So it's a particular point in time at which a transaction is occurring that FERB can come in and impose conditions. And secondly, um, as, the, as, the, as, as the government has said, um, this new legislation is ownership agnostic, whereas 
the FERB legislation only um, responds to foreign investment, this responds to all investment, regardless of who the owner is. Um, so I think that's the first thing, and, and possibly uh, FERB will have less to do once this legislation takes off uh, in, in the sense that a lot of the conditions we're seeing now imposed in a number of sectors like uh, data centres and the health sector in terms of the management of uh, data, particularly personal data, uh, will be now taken over and dealt with uh, through, the, um, through this uh, alternative mechanism. Um, in terms of sort of how the legislation interact legally, uh, at the beginning of the year, there were some significant changes to the um, foreign investment laws, and they brought in the concept of a national security business. And the national security business, the definition of that concept was linked to two concepts in the Critical Infrastructure Act. One is the concept of a responsible entity. Sorry, I think before I said relevant entity, I got it mixed up, responsible entity. And the other is a direct interest holder. Um, there will be 25 definitions of what a responsible entity is. We're not quite sure what they will be yet. Um, but it'll be basically the person who either operates, is licensed to own or owns the infrastructure. And then a direct interest holder can be anyone who has 10% or greater interest in critical infrastructure assets or um, has influence or control over those assets regardless of their ownership level. And influence and control can be as minor as simply having the right to appoint a single director to the board of the company that uh, uh, owns the asset. Um, what, what it means for, for business is with this huge expansion that we're going to see in what is defined as critical infrastructure, there will be a very significant amount of transactions um, occurring which are now subject to a nil monetary threshold under the FERB legislation, whereas uh, before they were possibly subject to either a $281 million threshold or in some cases a $1.2 billion threshold. Uh, that's the first thing. And second, the, the threshold for ownership has, has reduced from 20% to 10% and in some cases lower than that. Um, and so just to take an example, I might be acquiring a 10% interest, I, a foreigner, may be acquiring a 10% interest in a direct interest holder who in turn holds a 10% interest in critical infrastructure. So my acquisition is really the acquisition of a 1% indirect interest in critical infrastructure. That transaction will be subject to compulsory notification under the foreign investment laws. So we're getting down to 1% um, as, a, as a possible threshold. And in many cases, it could be lower than that. Um, the other important aspect that uh, FERB has is when it comes to national security businesses, it's not just regulating acquisitions. It's also regulating someone who starts a national security business. And we've had about nine months of grappling with this now, and three problems have effectively emerged. The first is for an existing industry player, when is a new initiative starting a new national security business and when is it just a continuation of your existing business? And FERB hasn't really given any guidance on this. 
um, it's really sort of guesswork at the moment as to at what point is there a trigger. Um, all Ferber's said saying, oh, well, they'll need to be sufficiently different and that's as helpful as they've been. Um, the other problem is people who are engaging in preliminary activities. So say uh, you're someone who wants to get into a critical infrastructure business in Australia, perhaps as a, as a new business initiative, and you, you, you put some people into Australia to conduct, to conduct initial feasibility into, um, into that uh, business initiative. That in itself, at least based on some of the guidance I've received from FERC, could be enough to constitute starting a national security business. So you're placing an entry impediment uh, in front of a lot of people to even pursue the feasibility of getting involved in a business, let alone starting the business. Um, and then finally, um, I think one of the, the errors that has been made in this legislation, and it, it works against the government, is that they've relied upon the old-fashioned requirement for a physical nexus to exist with Australia. They've used the words carrying on business in Australia. Now, that concept um, is very well defined both in a corporate sense and in a tax sense and in a lot of other legislation and court cases. And it's generally resolved around old concepts of having an office in Australia, having employees here, if not employees, having agents, but physical doing of things in Australia. Um, now, in today's age, and particularly where we are seeing critical infrastructure move from just a hard assets focus to a more soft assets focus as well, it's quite possible that a lot of very critical businesses could actually be conducted wholly outside of Australia and beyond the scope of the foreign investment laws, and also, uh, I believe, beyond the scope of the um, jurisdictional nexus um, under the um, critical infrastructure laws. Um, now, to date, the government seems to have tried to solve that problem by making some assertions as to what they meant by carrying on business in Australia that I don't think is supported by the body of case law that exists. Um, and I think if, if that's not fixed through legislation, there's going to be a point at which the government is embarrassed where it seeks to use its powers and finds that it cannot do so. Thanks, Marcus. This is the BLS Report. I'm Pamela Hanrahan and we're listening to Rebecca Dunn from Gilbert and Tobin and Marcus Clark from JWS on the Critical Infrastructure Bill. Thanks, Marcus. That was really helpful to look at the intersection between the Critical Infrastructure Bill and the FERB regime. Just coming back to what the Critical Infrastructure Bill itself will require, for those sectors where all of the regime is turned on, we've talked about the government's step-in rights. But, of course, the primary focus of the legislation is to get private entities that are conducting businesses in those sectors to devote more resources and attention to their own cyber security. So I'm going to ask the controversial question, uh, is the government going to end up punishing the victims of cyber crime under this legislation? Rebecca? 
That's a great question, Pamela, and it's often something we see arising in relation to cybersecurity incidents because um, the actual perpetrators are generally unknown and anonymous, and so the companies who are the victims of attack tend to take um, the public kind of blame, if you will, for for what's happened um, regardless of um, what steps they take. And so it ends up being a little bit like uh, blame the victim, as you've said. Now, in relation to this bill and the obligations that are being placed on these particular industry sectors, the government's asking um, organisations to take a number of positive steps to, as you say, invest further in um, their cybersecurity preparedness. Uh, essentially, it's the, the bill calls it a positive security obligation, but it really means getting ready for an attack and making sure that you've done everything you can in order to um, prevent it and avoid it and and deal with it if it does happen. So, yes, there, there is an imposition of um, a number of, of steps, which, as I said earlier, many organisations, particularly larger organisations, will already do some of these things because they're good practice. Um, but as Marcus mentioned, we're not sure yet how far this um, this bill will extend. If we're talking about coals and bullies, it's one thing, but if we're talking about every person, every quarter shop, that's quite another and and the imposition on um, those smaller businesses will be significant. Some of the things that they've been asked to do are maintain or implement a register of assets and critical infrastructure assets, which um, gives the government a lot of information about the ownership and control of those assets and um, their location and any risks associated with access to them. They're also being asked to maintain a critical infrastructure risk management program, and this basically... um, is about risk mitigation. Uh, It talks about supply chain risks, physical risks, as well as cyber risks. Um, And finally, obviously, the mandatory notification uh, puts a significant burden on those entities, uh, particularly the timing of that notification. Um, 12 hours is an extremely abbreviated time. Um, We see overseas that a more standard time in the UK is 72 hours, and I think the US is also considering 72 hours um, in their proposed legislation. So it it is a significant burden on those organisations. Whether or not it will have the desired effect is is the question that we'll have to look at as this plays out. Mm. One of the things that we really see in financial services, Rebecca, is that you have a number of federal regulators, all of whom have a view about aspects of the business. Um, And we certainly know if you're a financial institution that's regulated by APRA, um, you're already subject to significant um, prudential standards and so on dealing with cybersecurity responsibilities. We've also seen ASIC, um, well, we'll see what happens under its new chair, but I, I think the securities regulator has for some years been under pressure to sheet home responsibility to individual executives and directors when things go wrong. And often we see in the community there's a sort of general view that if you want to get a big faceless company to do something, you do it. The best way to do it is to make the executives liable if it fails to do that. But how do you see this regulatory regime playing out with all the other regulators 
that have something to say in this space. Are you optimistic that they'll all get their ducks in a row or are you worried about that? Look, it has to be something that we would be concerned about. Absolutely, as you've said, there's a lot of people um, taking an interest in cybersecurity at the moment across the board. Um, the different regulators have different agendas and I agree that um, certainly something directors I know are looking at and it's high on their risk list um, for most boards at the moment in terms of their companies and their own um, obligations in relation to disclosure. So um, that's a huge issue for publicly listed companies, um, particularly because of some of the attention that's being given to it by regulators. Um, I've seen in relation to this particular bill, even the um, privacy commissioner has put in a submission indicating that the inconsistencies or the different obligations which arise under the Privacy Act and the Notifiable Data Breach Scheme and this scheme, um, this bill, uh, are, are slightly at odds. Um, and so the Privacy Commission is only one of the regulators with an interest in this area. So I think it will be interesting to see how they work together, certainly based on um, the speed with which this bill was originally put together, um, bearing in mind some time has elapsed since submissions were called for. Uh, it doesn't seem like uh, there has been a real... Um, consideration of the different ways those regulators will work together going forward. Marcus, you've uh, said uh, that uh, one of the greatest burdens of this bill may be on regulators, not the regulated. What do you mean by that? Uh, it's probably two concerns I have. Um, the, the, the one I think I was focusing on there was there's going to be a lot of information that the government receives as part of um, this uh, legislative initiative and the huge expansion of what, what, what is covered by critical infrastructure. And, and I think, you know, when they receive that information, they own that information. And I don't mean they own it in a legal sense. I mean they own it. They're responsible for looking at the information, analysing it, and taking a whole-of-nation approach to then, you know, a matrix approach to determining where the critical infrastructure issues are. And those critical infrastructure issues could overlap between sectors. Um, so it's something that you may not see in your particular company, but when the government has access to information for all the different companies and all the different sectors, it can put uh, together um, a, a profile of risk. Um, the, the risk is that it doesn't do that. It just actually sits on the information and it doesn't have the resources or the skills that are necessary to, um, to properly invigilate um, uh, the information that it receives. And, and I think it will, it will receive blame for that if, that's, if that occurs. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's exactly the same problem that we have with breach reporting regimes across the whole space. Marcus, can I ask you something else? Do you think that because Australian critical infrastructure providers will be required to share this information with government, that foreign investors will be reluctant to play in this space because they won't necessarily want the Australian government and through it the Five Eyes to have this level of visibility into their businesses? It might work both ways in the sense that uh, we are we are certainly seeing problems for um, investors who are outside of those jurisdictions um, investing in sensitive areas of the economy. Um, so maybe the government might not care. Um, 
some of the advice I'm giving to people in national defence is, and I think it, it spills over to critical infrastructure, if you want to be in this space, you have to really want to be in this space. This is not... Um, this is not an area where a very small division within your um, broader company can play. Um, the, the, the costs of compliance, um, the focus and the risk that you'll be taking are such that you have to be all in or you need to get out. Um, and I think that is going to be a problem for us because we are ultimately a small country and people will just not be bothered um, participating in a lot of these sectors. We'll have reduced competition, higher barriers to entry. And in a sense, that's not in our interest of national security. One of the, one of the elements of national security is resilience, having different options. If we have less competitors, we have less options. Less participants in a sector, less options. Um, and 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 what, if one of those competitors goes down, we have a bigger problem with these re- with these regulations than we would have otherwise had with no regulation. Yeah, interesting, John. Did you want to ask any other questions? Yeah, um, I guess one one concern that I think has been expressed about the. Um, uh, ASD or the government sort of jumping in and taking over the operation of critical infrastructure is, uh, you know, what what's the impact on the business, on uh, the duties of of the the, the people involved, um, and are there sufficient immunities in the legislation to kind of protect people with with the government sort of uh, sailing in and taking over? Re- Rebecca, have you got any comment on that aspect? Yeah, sure, John. Great question. Um, I think that. That it's a it's a very valid concern, and certainly at the moment, um, the types of steps that the intervening or stepping in party might be able to take are pretty broad. So they're going to be able to monitor, search premises, examine or observe activities, inspect documents, operate their own electronic equipment, ask questions, and um, and seize evidence. So it's it's kind of like a significant civil intervention. Um, in these organisations' operations. So uh, that's quite significant. Uh, I think the Australian Information Security Association said in its submission that it's not so much a carrot and stick as it is all stick. Um, In terms of the protections that are there for individuals, um, I think that to the contrary, I think that there's a bit of exposure for individuals that if they don't provide the type of assistance they want that the government's asking for, there might be some problems for them um, and, and penalties um, for them. So I think that's certainly something that needs to be looked at um, as the as the bill proceeds and the rules be, are put in place. And do you have any insight into when we might see the, the bill in operation or what the sort of the next steps are? The the, the Parliamentary Joint Committee needs to report, presumably, as a, as a next step, uh, although because they, they engage in security, maybe they'll do that secretly. Yes, that's one of the problems, I think. Um, so, yeah, the, part, the committee needs to report back either um, publicly or otherwise, and it needs to come back before the House for a vote. Um, and I think, as you said, in opening, given the elections next year, or has to be held by certainly the second quarter next year, 
we can expect to see it happen before then. Certainly it has been a little while. We've been waiting for this, so um, expect some action sooner rather than later. Marcus, are we creating a one-stop shop for hackers? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, one of the protections we have in a complex society protecting our information is that it's dispersed. And it's very difficult for someone to build up a profile of what's necessary to attack our critical infrastructure institutions because it just takes a lot of effort to sort of hoover up all the data points and work out what, what needs to be done. But in a sense, we are we are uh, hoovering up that information into the Department of Home Affairs, Critical Infrastructure Centre, um, and, yes, that's, that's, that's going to be a potential goldmine for, um, for, cyber, for cyber hacking. Uh, the, the information they will be able to obtain if they gain access to home affairs systems would be extraordinary and would include analysis on, 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 on what, it, what, it, what would be required, in fact, to attack our society and attack our um, economy. Presumably including uh, details of vulnerability reports and the uh, outcome of exercises. Mm. Inter in interesting thought, that one. Wonderful. Well, we've been very fortunate to have Rebecca Dunn from Gilbert and Tobin and Marcus Clark from Johnson Winter Slattery with us to discuss this controversial legislation. Rebecca and Marcus, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Pleasure. And thanks to my co-presenter, as always, John Keeves. Um, I'm Pamela Hanrahan, and this has been the BLS Report in honour of Professor Bob Baxt for the Business Law section of the Law Council of Australia. Thanks, and we'll see you again soon.